our little sermon series we've been doing called Leave the Consequences, right? I'll, I'll, re, I'll reiterate to you what we've talked about the past couple weeks. Charles Stanley, the, the late great pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, had a lot of different sayings. Then one of them was, do the right thing, leave the consequences up to God. It's a great thing to, to kind of really live your life by. Just do the right thing and let God handle the rest of it. So we've been taking a look at a couple different stories in Scripture of when that happened. If you remember two weeks ago, we looked at, jo uh, uh, at Joseph. I almost said Job. That's who we're talking about today. At Joseph. And we looked at three instances, right, when he's sold into slavery, uh, when he's uh, put in jail, and then when he, he relies on God to, um, uh, to, to interpret the dreams. And really the crux of that one was that quite often when you do the right thing and leave the consequences up to God, those consequences are not going to be to your liking. The long and the short of it. Last week then, after we looked at Joseph, last week we looked at Paul and Silas, right, when they're thrown into prison because they drive the, the demon out of the one girl and it cost this guy quite a lot of bit of money, so he's ticked off. And so he has them thrown in prison, and they're in the stocks, and then they're singing at midnight, right, and the earthquake happens, all that kind of stuff. And really the big point of last week was you don't know what God is doing. God's got a plan, and you don't know what it is. You're probably not going to know what it is, so get on and hold on tight. Paul and Silas get a whole family saved because they did the right thing. It's great. I beat around a lot. Who am I going to talk about this week? And after the first sermon on Joseph, I had Joseph and Paul and Silas already done. I was like, who's going to be the third one? Because there's a bunch of different examples in Scripture you could use for this. I said, who's going to be the third one? And as, as Maddie and I are standing up there shaking everybody's hands as they're leaving, Pat Birch down here goes, you know who's a great example? Job. And I went, hot dog, you're right. That's what it'll be. So we're going to talk about Job today, but not all of what happened to Job. We'd be here a very long time if we did. The main point that I want to make to you guys today, and I'm going to tell you it off the top, right? So we've talked about that when you do the right thing and leave the consequences up to God, most of the time those consequences are not going to be to your liking. We've talked about that when you do the right thing and leave the consequences up to God, he's got a plan, you don't know it, hold on tight. Today we're going to talk about what should be our response when those bad things happen. What should be our attitude? How should we look at it? Because the bad things are going to happen. I'd love to stand up here and tell you that they're not going to. They are. All over the place. Um, if I may, I'm not going to ask her if I can do this. I got a call at like 8.30 this morning from Christine who said, I don't think I'm going to make it. My car broke down. Bad things happen to good people. It happens. Thankfully, her friend was able to bring her up. But, but bad things happen. It happens, right? It, so what should be our response? What should be our attitude? I want to read to you the very beginning of Job, where we see we get to know what's taking place in the life of Job. Job does not. But we actually get to see the behind the scenes of Job. And I want to read the, just one passage of that to you. So we're going to be in two different passages in Job. That's why it's not written on your note sheets if you grabbed a bulletin. Um, that's why it's not on your note sheets. The first one's Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. And it reads like this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord, and he said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is not one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Pause. Isn't that pretty cool? The God of the universe is praising him. 
Like, that's pretty cool. Job's pretty awesome right there. How many of you think God's doing that for you today? Good, we're all on the same page. Nate, my brother's back there like, yeah, I think so. I think God's a big fan of me. I'm the best here. Okay, sorry, pick it up in verse, uh, in verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Number one on your note sheets. Number one, if you grabbed a note sheet. What we don't see. What we don't see. So Satan, one of Satan's jobs at this point is the accuser of the brethren. He literally goes before God and accuses you in front of God. So good for you if you're a Christian. Satan accuses you. And so we see this, uh, this event unfold. All the angels are before God and Satan waltzes into the throne room. Place that he has uh, not been for probably quite some time as he was cast out of it. Waltzes into the throne room. And God's like, where have you been? God knows where he's at. That's like when your parents ask you, so what have you been doing? They already know. It's probably better just to tell the truth. We've talked about that many times in here. Where have you been? Satan answers him, and God goes, what about my servant Job? You seen him? He worships me. He praises me. He is an upright man. He's about as perfect as you can be as a human being. Job still sinned, right? Don't, mis don't mistake what God is saying here. Job still sinned sometimes, right? Because he was human. But the fact of the matter is that Job is about as close to perfect as you can get, right? Mary Poppins over here, practically perfect in every way. And Satan raises a very, very good point. Well, of course he praises you. You've protected him from me. You've given him money, land, a really good family, great friends. You've given him all of this stuff. Of course he praises you. Now, God knows how this is all going to go, but he needs to prove a point as well. So he goes, fine. You can harm him. You may not kill him. And so later on, throughout the book of Job, we read that Job suffers physically. He suffers mentally. He suffers emotionally. His wealth is gone. His family dies except for his nagging wife. His friends, who are supposed to be so great for him, come and give him horrible advice. So much so that later on in Job, God's going to speak to them about how dumb they are. Satan is literally allowed to systematically strip away every piece of good thing Job has. He's just not allowed to kill him. Death would have been preferable to what Job went through. To die and go to heaven, that's so much better than what Job went through. But here's the thing. I mentioned it a minute ago. God already knew what all was going to happen in the life of Job. The entire thing. He knows what's going to happen. God has a plan. He has a plan. It will come to pass. It will. It doesn't matter what I try to do. It doesn't matter what Satan tries to do or a demon or you. It doesn't matter. God's plan is going to happen. That's a big comfort to me personally because man, I, so many times things happen and you're going, what the heck God? Or maybe you use some other language. And you're going, I thought, I thought we were doing this for you. We're doing what you asked us to do. 
Why is this so hard? I'll give you a great example. This was from back when I was a teenager. So more than 10 years ago, which boy is getting, I know I'm not old, but with each passing NFL draft, when they're like, this kid was born in 2000, and I'm like, what in the world? How? It's not fair. I feel old sometimes. I'm a teenager. We're working at VBS at the church we were going to at that time, right? Huge VBS. We would have like 100-plus kids, 30-plus leaders uh, throughout the building. It was all day long. We had a great time. Kids got saved. It was it, it just it was incredible. It was amazing. And the one time I remember, this was this one summer. All this happened in one summer during the week of VBS, Monday through Friday. We went to Sam's Club to get some more uh, snacks and stuff like that. Flat tire while we were in Sam's Club. The car broke down on the way home one time. The refrigerator stopped working, as did the washing machine. I'm sure there is more that since I was, you know, 15, 16 years old, I just was not privy to. What? Chuch, who was my mom, she ran the VBS, her right-hand person, had to get a root canal that week, apparently. I believe Nathan, I don't remember it, but I don't remember much from my teenage years. The fact of the matter is that we are literally proclaiming the truth of the gospel to kids in the inner city, and everything that can go wrong is going wrong. And you sit there and you go, God, why? Aren't we doing what you ask us to do? Couldn't you make it a little bit easier? Yeah, he probably could. He's just not going to. God has a plan. If memory serves correctly, that week, we, at VBS when we did it, we always gave the salvation message on Thursday. That's just kind of the way that it works. I would do it earlier in the week. That was also a thing I always had with youth camps. They're like, Thursday night is the salvation message. I'm like, why? The first three days are useless then. Why not give the salvation message Monday night? Get people saved, and then you can teach them. Because the Bible means nothing to an unbeliever. That's just me. I don't run youth camps, though, so I don't know. And I've never tried to, and I probably never will try to, because I would try that and figure out why it's on Thursdays. But either way, if memory serves correctly, that week was an incredible week of kids getting saved. One of the best years we had. So yeah, it was a hard road to walk, but God had a plan. And he has a plan for my life. He has a plan for your life. He has a plan for FBC New Milford. He has a plan for another voice. He has a plan for everything, a perfect plan. And it will come to pass. Take heart in that. Also understand this. How many of you in here would call yourself either a know-it-all or um, a control freak? Not enough of you raised your hands. I know you guys. I know you guys. You can put your hands down. So here's the thing. You won't know the plan, most likely. Right? We talk about, oh, God only illuminates the next step. Maybe. Quite often, he just says jump. Go. And you're like, oh, God, why? That doesn't seem like the wise, prudent course of action. You're not going to know the plan. You're not going to be able to control it. You're not going to see. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Go read Hebrews chapter 11 and tell me how many of them saw what was promised to them. I'll tell you, it was zero. How do I know? Hebrews chapter 11 says it. 
and they're the hall of faith. They're like the big ones. If they don't get to know the plan, neither do you, and neither do I. The fact of the matter is we're not going to know it. There will always be more going on than what you see, always. So then let's talk about how we should react to that. In Job 42, and actually in chapters about 39 uh, through like 42, 43, we see Job and God have this discourse with each other. Um, and we read, we really find out that Job is not quite as perfect as he might seem um, because Job meets his wit's end. I can't blame him. But then he does something that God takes a little bit of... Um, Offense isn't the right word, but he, he's going to put Job in his place, like any good parent does. He's going to put Job where he belongs. It's in Job 42, verses 1 through 6. It reads, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, and now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust ashes. So here's what's happened. Number two in your note sheets. Trust, don't question. Trust, don't question. Here's what happens. Job finally has had enough. I can't blame the poor man. He has lived, for however long this takes, has lived the epitome of Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong, and it has. And his two great sources of comfort, or I should say the two what should have been great sources of comfort, are just piling onto him. His wife is like, well, you must be the most horrible person in the world for this to happen. Why don't you just curse God and die? Thank you, wife. That is so encouraging to me. And then his friends come, and they essentially say the same basic thing. Good for Job. His friends are telling him he's a dirty, rotten sinner as he's using broken pieces of pottery to scrape the pus off of himself. We read that in Job. Really great friends right there. Those are the types of friends I want around me. And Job finally snaps. And he doesn't snap at his wife. He doesn't snap at his friends. Instead, he snaps at God. God, how dare you allow me to go through this? I've worshipped you and praised you. I've given to you. I've done everything you have asked my entire life. How dare you let this happen to me? And God shows up and has a very nice conversation with Job where he essentially says, who in the world do you think you are? I am God. You are a speck. Do you wrestle with the Leviathan? I don't think so. I do. And if you're curious... The Leviathan is a dragon. Go ahead and go read it. It is a fire-breathing lizard. Dragons existed at some point. I think that's great. It says so right in Scripture. It's a lot of fun. God's literally like, do you command the storms? Do you wrestle with the animals? Do you do this? Can you do that? And Job's response is finally it clicks for him. He goes, oh, crap. I messed up. And I repent, I retract, and I repent. How many of you have ever been in a fight, whether it's the parents, a loved one, a friend, something like that, and at some point in the middle of the fight, right, you're going back and forth, it hits you just how wrong you actually were. And you have two choices to make. You can either double down on you being an idiot, that's the choice I generally make, or, or, 
you can go, crap, I was wrong. And admit to your own wrongdoing. The problem is most of us are pretty prideful. We don't like to do that. So Job does this. So here's the question I ask you guys as well. Who do you think you are? This sentiment is, re is reiterated throughout the Bible in Romans 9 and a few other places. The fact of the matter is that you and I have absolutely zero right to question God at all. Now, I do want to say this. It is not wrong, at least from my understanding of Scripture, it is not wrong to go, to, to be on your knees, crying out to God, right, uh, your knees figuratively, right? Yeah, you can't be there physically, but I mean it figuratively. Your heart's on its knees, right? To crying out to God and go, God, I don't understand what you're doing. Will you clue me in? When you have the attitude of, God, I want to do what you're asking me to do. Help me to understand so I can walk correctly. That is the right attitude, and that is an okay question. That's not where Job was. And sadly, most of the time, that's not where we are either. We're going, God, I've given money to you. It's his money anyway. I've given my time to you. It's his time anyway. I've given my blood, sweat, tears, my talents, my skills to you, God. You haven't given him jack. It's all his anyway. Every last bit of it, you can't give him anything. And exactly in one of the chapters in Job, I think it's Job 41, he literally says that. It's all mine. What do you think you have given me? So I ask you this this morning, who do you think you are? Now this is a hard thing for us because like I said, we like to be in control. We like to think we're pretty awesome. We like to, we don't want to be told you don't have a right to question God because I, I'm a human, I should have the right. It's my human right to do, and it is not your human right to do anything with God. He created you. Right, you, you've all probably heard the saying, right, when a, a mom's like, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out of it. God can literally do both. Scripture says, don't fear the one who can kill your body. Fear the one who kills the body and casts the soul into hell. God literally goes, I can take care of you very quickly. We like to think we're so great, we're so high, we're so mighty. And the fact of the matter is that we have no right ever to question God. With the right attitude, we can say, God, I don't understand what you're doing. Will you clue me in? And when he says no, you say, okay, I'll keep walking. And it's okay to keep asking him. It's okay to go, right, God. You know, I thought about, um, most of you know, my grandma's been dead about seven months now, give or take, in September. And um, for those of you that may not be aware, I'm very confident she knew she was going to die on that Sunday because she made sure she said goodbye to just about everybody. And then she had a stroke Monday morning. This is a woman who was, she was 90, right? She wasn't 91. She was 91? Okay. She had just turned 91, that's right, in July, okay. 91 years old, has dedicated her life to God. Has done so many things for God that I, I, I'm never even gonna live up to. And God decides to call her home by making her have a stroke and then lying in a hospital bed for not a day, but you know, four or five hours, something like that. And I'm going, time out, God. Why don't you just let her die in her sleep nice and peacefully? Call her home. Call home this angel for you. It didn't make sense to me. It still doesn't. That's okay. It's never going to. 
I can think of countless other examples. I won't give them because I don't, I don't have permission to give them of, of moments where you go, God, what, what are you doing? You've got to have the right attitude with it. God, I don't understand. I don't. And maybe I never will. In fact, I probably never will. But help me to walk anyway. So let's apply it to our lives, shall we? Let's apply it. Number one, and I, and I keep saying this to you, and I'm going to keep saying it. Do the right thing and leave the consequences up to God. We've talked about it for almost a month now. Do the right thing. I don't care what it is. I don't care what it pertains to, how hard it might be. You do the right thing. Here's the thing. We've talked about this a bunch too. Four or five years ago, I thought it was the right thing to start a youth group. It failed. A couple of years back, I thought it again. It failed. Last year, we started one. It's finally, it's finally doing stuff. I don't get it. Why did we have to fail the first two times? I don't know. God does. Maybe I'll ask him when I get there, and he'll probably say, it's not important. Keep going. Do the right thing. Leave the consequences up to God. And then I want you to ask yourself this. How do you view what God is doing? What is your perception of what God is doing, right? In, in the, in the, um, in the uh, educational world and stuff like that, we would call it a worldview. What's your worldview? When you see things happening, is your first response to go, okay, well, Scripture says X, Y, Z, therefore this. Or is your first response to go, oh, I don't know. I'll tell you this much, and this is going to make some people in here not very happy with me, and that's okay. The election of 2020 showed a lot of people's worldviews, quite a lot. There's no such thing as stealing an election because God's the one who puts somebody as the president, not us. It's just the truth of the matter. Go ahead, read it in Romans. He's put every ruler in its place ever, ever. How do we view what's going on? Do we view it through the lens of Scripture? And that includes what God is doing. When something happens in my life, do I see it as, okay, God, what are you doing? You're not going to tell me? Okay, help me to keep walking. Or do I view it like Job eventually? And here's the thing. Job did really well for a long time. He did really well for a long time. Seeing things the right way. And eventually it got too much for him. And here's what happened. You might say, well, pastor, if that's going to happen, isn't it going to happen to all of us? Here's what happened to Job. He stopped relying on the one who could give him the ability to keep seeing it that way. He was weak and he stopped relying. Read the end of Job. Job's life gets exponentially better. It does. God blesses him for having to walk through this. Church, if you're thinking, oh, God's going to bless me for having to walk through this, maybe, most likely it'll be when you get to heaven. How do you view what is happening? And then finally, finally, here's your practical application for the week. Something I'd like you to do, and I want you to do it every day, morning or evening. You can do it multiple times a day uh, as well, but at least once a day, for the next week, I want you to ask God to reveal to you your heart, right? We don't sing it here very often, um, but there's this, this beautiful song called Here's My Heart, Lord. Um, and the crux of it is, literally, here's my heart, Lord, speak what is true. When you say that to God, I knew somebody once who told me, well, that's the best prayer I pray. It should not be. Because when God speaks what is true about your heart, you are going to hear a lot of things you do not like. That is a terrifying prayer. When you actually say, okay, God, tell me what's true about me. Because he will say things like, 
I love you. He will say things like, you are blessed, you are mine. He will say those things. And boy, that should bring great comfort. He's also going to say, you're a liar. You're a cheat. You have too many idols. You have this, you have that. He will point out the sin in your life. Now, here's the difference. And here's something I want you to recognize when you pray this prayer. Okay? The Holy Spirit, for a believer, okay? The Holy Spirit does not condemn. He convicts. What's the difference? Condemnation is, uh, it tears you down. It tells you you're not his. It tells you you are worthless. It tells you that you're not worth God. And here's the thing. It's right. You're not. You are because of what Christ did. But you and I are not. Here's what conviction does. Conviction does bring some guilt. The Bible doesn't say you can't be guilty when you're a believer. You should feel guilty when you sin. Conviction is when the Holy Spirit points out the sin in your life and you go, okay, I got to take care of that. And you start walking through it. If you, when you are, when you pray this prayer, if you start just having the snot beat out of you, that is not God. That's either you or, or, or the, uh, Satan. It won't be Satan himself. Sorry, again, I say this all the time as well. No one in this room is nearly important enough for Satan himself to come and, and talk to you. So, um, but I'm not saying the Holy Spirit doesn't beat us up, but it's always with love. I had a, a, a good friend, and, and, and Bundy over here and Christine back there will know him. Um, a good friend, and I've talked about him before. Uh, his name is Tristan. And Tristan had this uncanny ability to tell you the most vile, disgusting things about yourself that were true, and somehow you left feeling better. Am I wrong? Somehow you felt uplifted when he was done. That is what the Holy Spirit does. Tristan is not the Holy Spirit. He is not perfect by any means. But he was able, the Holy Spirit would use him all the time. But that's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts, but he builds back up. Condemnation just tears down and leaves you in pieces. God never just leaves us in pieces. He builds back up. So as you pray this prayer, recognize that. That if you were just being torn apart nonstop, that's not God doing that. We're done with this sermon series, but I don't want you to forget it. Do the right thing and leave the consequences up to God. Recognizing that they're probably not going to be what you want. You're not going to know what's going on. And when you have the right attitude about it, God just does these incredible things. Bow your heads. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for these three examples and then countless others throughout Scripture that teach us um, to do the right thing. We're never going to know what you're doing. I won't say never. We are probably not going to know what you're doing. That's okay. We're not called to. We are called to walk in faith. I praise you for that, Father. I ask your blessing on the rest of our week together. Um, and it's in the name of your son we pray. Amen.